Welcome to Because We Make, the podcast about making, creativity, and why we do what we do as makers and creatives. I'm your host, Vincent Ferrari, and joining me as always, my good friend and co-host, Ms. Brooke Deneau. Hi, Brooke. Hello, it's me. It's me. <laughs> How are you doing, Vincent? I'm I'm doing I'm doing wonderfully. I'm doing wonderfully. The move, and we'll talk about this in a second, but the move into my apartment is basically over. And really? I am so excited. Like everything has a place now. I've filled in all the gaps with the stuff that that Beth and I split. So it's really weird, by the way, when you go through this whole process <laughs> and the person you're with takes like the frying pan and it's like, oh crap, I don't have a frying pan. Like, you know, it's stuff that you don't think about. It's yeah. When very... was the last time that you shopped for a frying pan? I, the, the one that she has. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't really think about it much, huh? Yeah, no, it's very strange. Like even grocery shopping, it's like, I went, <laughs> very funny. I didn't, I didn't think of this when we were talking last week, but on Sunday or yeah, it was either Sunday or Saturday. I went grocery shopping and I bought all this food and I was very happy with myself for, you know, properly adulting, like not just buying frozen meals. I bought actual stuff to cook and I loaded up my fridge and my cabinets and everything. And throughout the week, I was thinking like, well, this is great. You got all this food. Well, what were you planning on using to cook it? I have no utensils. <laughs> I had I had like one pan that wasn't going to be big enough to cook anything. And I'm like, wow, I, I thought of all the food, but I didn't think of all the stuff that you don't think of, you know, because I mean, food gonna, shopping. You're not just going to cook it in the giant pan and then use your bare hands to just grab <laughs> it and shovel it in your face. Oh, my God. I like I should just hold it in my hands until it's just lukewarm <laughs> enough to eat. And, but I, I, I figured it out. I've I've adulted properly. And now my apartment is starting to look like someone actually lives here, not like somebody's, in, you know, squatting. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. I'm happy yeah, to hear that. Thank it's you. a big transition, too. So you got to, like, be proud of yourself a little there. Oh, yeah. I've, I mean, it's it's not just the transition of going from one place to another, but it's seriously downsizing. I mean. My, I'm, I'm, I lost 400 square feet. Well, you know. I think the downsizing is great. Oh, it's, I'm definitely not complaining. And in fact, my craft room is more organized than it has ever, ever been because I don't have a choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. How about you? What was your week like? Oh, it's an exceptionally average week. There's not really much of <laughs> note. Um, but nothing wrong with that. It just was, it was a very average week. I got into the shop a little bit, which was really good. Um, and I'm starting a new project, which is exciting. I finished the design for it and Ooh. I'm going to try to do a laser cut kite. Wow. Yeah. That's, That's kind of ambitious. It always is. It always is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I love about you and one of the reasons, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you as my co-host is because whenever you take on a project, it's never anything like you don't do basic stuff at all, like ever. No. It's like I, I hate making things that I know how to make. If that makes mm, sense, yeah. That's how I always phrase it to people. Like I already, if I've if I've already made something before, it's like, well, I've made that. I don't want to make that again. <laughs> you, you and Grant, the two of you together. That's. I wish I had a dollar for every time he said that. He oh, really? is one of those guys. Oh, he he just is one of those guys who absolutely positively hates making anything more than once. Yeah, I can't do it. 
But I also, I think that's part of why I like digital tools because I can design it once and then I don't feel bad not making it again because it's like, well, the design's there. So if I wanted to, I could. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most interesting things about Grant, by the way, since he, since he came up, is his most recent video is making um, a piece of furniture that has like a bunch of drawers in it. And mm -hmm. it's like, you hate making things more than once. And this thing has like 20 drawers. <laughs> <laughs> Torture. Yeah, exactly. He's, I can imagine just by the end of it, he was probably fit to be tied. But yeah, you should just check out his latest video. There you go, Grant. There's your plugs. See, I'm back to doing plugs for my buddy Grant again. So it's all good. <laughs> oh, we have a guest. Yes, we <laughs> Believe do. Believe it or not, we do. This was someone that since, Brooke, since you turned me on to this person, I'll let you do the introduction. We, um, have, we have blacksmith Alan Kerboy. Did I say that right, Alan? Yes, you did, Brooke. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> with us today, and he is a blacksmith. You can follow him on at Lucky Nails Blacksmith on Instagram. How are you doing, Alan? I'm doing well. How about you, Vincent? Doing, doing wonderfully. 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 <laughs> Vincent's well, on cloud nine. <laughs> I am really. I am. I'm you seem honestly, really happy. I'm in like the best mood I've been in in weeks. It's amazing. I'm, you know, aside from being tired, you know how it goes, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, before we get started, I, I do have a question for Brooke, listening to you guys talk during your sure. intro. Brooke, when you had said that you only want to make once mm -hmm. and then move on to something else, is, is that because you think that maybe making something over and over again would be like production work? And then do you think that production work kills creativity? Yes. This is such a topic, Alan. Oh, I, could, I could rant about oh, boy. this. Michael, <laughs> my husband and I actually, we previously used to sell work for a living. Like we had a gallery and used to sell our work. And that was exactly why we stopped doing that um, and opened the makerspace. Like that exact thing you just talked about. So yeah, I absolutely, I think it kills creativity. <laughs> but don't you think that, that that very same production work enabled you to get to where you are today? Yes, 127,000 so, so percent yes <laughs> without without that you know getting your hands dirty part and and, and mm -hmm. what you may consider somewhat boring yeah it doesn't allow you to get to that creative stage yeah i think i think that doing the redundant work is a really really phenomenal way to get good at what you do mm -hmm. um even though it's not necessarily creative work at all by the end of the day it pays well, the bills it pays yeah. the bills yeah i think that i okay so i was um, was it about around this time, a couple of years ago, right? Before, so it was 2019. Yeah, it was 2019. So February, late February of 2019, I made my very first from scratch cutting board, my very, very, very first. And ever since then, I have made a lot of cutting boards, <laughs> like an enormous amount more than more than I ever expected to make when I was making that very first one. And mm -hmm. I think to some to some degree, I agree that you know your creativity kind of goes away. But I like the way Alan. I like I like your idea that it kind of or your processes get better. Like mm -hmm. you, your your whole your whole way of doing things starts to get more efficient, and you yeah. start to see what works and what doesn't. And even if you don't make the same thing over and over again, you start to learn what your processes for making things need to be. You start getting better at estimating timelines. You start getting faster at doing stuff. I kind of, I don't know. I, I, I'm maybe I'm just a creature of comfort, but I actually like making the same stuff over and over again. And for me, the excitement comes from shifting around the process and getting my processes faster and learning how to do things faster, more efficiently. And maybe, in, you know, 
a dose of creativity or turning things on their head a little bit when I do them. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just, a, like I said, maybe I'm well, just a creature of comfort that way. I think it's totally a, just a different strokes for different folks kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think that I totally see that we, we are at, we're at the makerspace, right? So we, so we deal with lots of different people all the time. And I totally see that as a, a difference between um, people that come in and use the equipment, mm-hmm. even that aren't doing it professionally or anything. Do they, do you feel like people don't get outside their comfort zones enough or? No, like, I think, I think that people that belong to a makerspace, if that's what you're asking mm-hmm. in the first place are people who are excited to try new things and get out of their comfort zone. But, um, like some people just use the laser all day, every day, and there's nothing wrong with that. Or they'll assembly line things to sell or whatever, versus other people that will work with will bounce between like the wood shop and metalworking and CNC routing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of more like that that we see, but it's interesting. It's super interesting. So Alan, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, so Alan, how did you get started blacksmithing? Okay, good. Thank you. I'm I'm just going to sit back because that's literally what the next thing out of my mouth is going to be. How did you get started? I I had a 26 26 year long career as a law enforcement officer. I retired as a Lieutenant uh, with a heart problem. Okay. And um, right around that same period of time, um, I was looking for ways to, you know, maybe find some relaxation in hobbies. And um, I was behind a pickup truck that was mm-hmm. going to a scrapyard. And in the back of that pickup truck, they had a bunch of rusty iron. And there was one thing that I immediately recognized in the back of that truck. And it was a blacksmith forge with a blower on it. Oh, no way. And you recognize that? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I'd always seen them on TV. And, and, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you know, the blacksmith in the the shop, shoeing horses and what have you. So I I realized what it was. And I pulled up alongside the guy that was driving the truck to the scrapyard. And I asked him, I said, do you want to sell that piece in the back? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, what do you want for it? He goes, $25. (laughs) I said, $25 and you can deliver it to my house and I'll give you an extra five. And he did. So I started with that as a hobby in mind. Um, but I didn't really fulfill learning to be a blacksmith until I began volunteering at old Sturbridge village Mm -hmm. uh, docent there. And I received some formal training from them in their particular period of blacksmithing. They, they depict 1790 to about 1840. So I learned, you know, for lack of a better term, traditional blacksmithing for a country blacksmith in that time period. That's so cool. So, oh, go. No, I didn't mean to interrupt if you're, if you're nope, still nope, going. Nope. I was going to say, so if I'm following, that was your first ever formal like training? Yeah, I, I had watched some YouTube videos like a lot of people do when I first got that forge. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I found it kind of frustrating. I was using the wrong kind of coal. Mm. I wasn't trying, you know, I was having difficulty getting my fire going. I wasn't getting the metal hot enough. I wasn't aware of the impact on sunlight versus shade, you know, in the color of your metal and what have you. So my, my, my first few attempts were kind of disastrous and <laughs> it kind of went on to the back burner until I retired and I went to Old Sturbridge Village as, as, a, as a volunteer uh, or what they call a, a, a docent. Mm-hmm. And um, they provided me with training in blacksmithing in their um, early 1800s granite blacksmith shop, the it's Moses Wilder shop. blacksmith shop. It, it certainly is. 
Yeah. I think because Vincent's not familiar with old Sturbridge Village, Alan, how would you just I'm from Massachusetts. And I think anyone that's from, excuse me, like this area of New England probably knows what old Sturbridge Village is, or at the very least went on a field trip there if they grew up here as a kid at some point in time, or had a child that did. Um, How would you describe old Sturbridge Village to someone that isn't familiar? Well, Old Sturbridge Village is New England's largest outdoor living history museum. It's sort of like an open air museum. It has over 40 buildings with costume interpreters that um, really key in on the point of time where the Industrial Revolution was really ramping up here in the United States. So 1790 to about 1840. Mm -hmm. And I think they kind of focus on sometime in the 1830s. I like to say 1838 or so. And... um, you see the change of agriculture life where, where, you know, over 85 or 87% of people were farmers and you start to see factory workers and, and laborers and, and different things because of the industrializa- industrialization, whether it be um, clothing manufacturers or um, plants that were making leather work or, or firearms or axes, mm-hmm. what have you. So it was, it's, it was an interesting time period. It was, it was a change from a simpler mm-hmm. time to a more complicated time. Yeah. And at that point in history, too, Massachusetts was smack in the middle of it. So it's a fascinating place to, to walk around and visit. Um, I enjoy visiting it there. Um, one thing, too, that's pretty cool about Old Sturbridge Village from an outsider looking in anyway, Alan, is that it always seems like a lo- so much of it's self-contained. So like the horseshoes that the horses are that are working in the fields are wearing like do you make those or is it a mix of things it appears it appears very self-contained to a visitor the the only thing there that has horses is the carryall ride and those horses are owned by an independent contractor who has somebody come in and shoe them himself or them for him he he did try to do shoeing for himself for a a brief period of time but there was a, a little problem in what happens to steel after you quench it it can become kind of hard and if it has a high enough carbon content when the horse's hoof comes out on pavement it can shatter and it may have happened once oh no whoa yeah, so so he, he doesn't do his own showing he has somebody else come in and do his showing okay makes sense makes sense now we um, used but, to sh- we used yeah. to shoe oxen however okay. they haven't they have not shod the oxen there for for quite some time cool so what types of stuff do you make in the shop there if you're just going for the day as a volunteer? Well, realistically, um, in the time period out in the countryside, um, the primary job of a blacksmith would have been a repairman. Because okay. if you wanted to buy an axe, a shovel, a rake, you were going to get that at the country store. You weren't going to have a, a blacksmith make it. I mean, while I can make an axe for you, that axe is going to take me and possibly a, a striker or an apprentice the better part of a day to do. And um, we're going to want, you know, appropriate wages for that. And you can probably buy that same little axe head at the store for way less than half of what I would want to sell it to you for. Mm-hmm. You know, factories are putting those out by the hundreds in a day, whereas I, I can't, you know, as a, as a country blacksmith, there's mm-hmm. nowhere I could even come close to that. You know, water power was was huge in, in, in the industrialization and having these giant trip hammers that could strike out these iron billets um, certainly was much more sensible than one man with a two and a half, three pound hammer or a striker with a eight to ten pound sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, most of the work in there would have been repair work. Now, that's not to say that we don't make other things in there mm-hmm. because we do. But there, there are things that would be appropriate for the time period, um, whether it be trivets, whether it be repairs to the stagecoach hardware, um, making um, a, uh, an iron sled, mm-hmm. you know, for snow sledding, um, a lot of hearth tools, oven peels, Nails. Uh, well, <laughs> nails, by, by 1790, nails were being made in a factory, unless you ordered hardware for me that required some sort of a fastener. If, oh, you, really? ordered, if you ordered hinges or um, some, some type of, of, of item, um, a, a, a gate lock or what have you, I would supply the nails for that. And simply because a blacksmith made nails, and the difference between blacksmith made nails and factory nails is that the blacksmith nail at the time period was a clinchable nail. Now, they did have screws back then, but the screws didn't have a point to them. You would have to start the the hole first and then put the screw in. Mm -hmm. And screws can eventually over time back out or if the wood gets dry, you, you know, they could loosen up and they could come out. But a blacksmith made clinchable nail, a nail that is driven into the wood with a piece of metal behind that wood that the nail hits and then turns back into the wood on itself. Um, that's called a clinched nail. Oh. And that's the difference between a, a blacksmith made nail because the, that factory nail is a cut nail at the time. It's a, it's a rectangular cut nail. And those nails, um, when you go to, to try to have those clinch, uh, they will likely shear. They will not bend back onto themselves. Is it? Do they? Is it because they do they harden them more, or is it just they're not well, designed to bend? Or I, I think there are there are a couple of, of reasons. One of them it could be due to to some sort of hardening, but more likely it's the the way that the material was cut from the raw iron, and um, it may be against the grain versus with the grain, and if it's against the grain then that grain's going to snap. Gotcha. So because we, we, we look at nails as being made out of wrought iron, and wrought iron is no longer really commercially produced. It might be produced in small batches by different, different um, organizations or universities or what have you. But um, in the 1960s, it became very much cost prohibitive and there really wasn't a lot of people looking to buy wrought iron. So it, it's, it's not produced in any any large quantities anymore whereas back in the 1800s that was your primary metal and steel was your secondary metal because it was much more costly so you limited the 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 amount of steel that you would use if i made a hammer it would be made with a body that is wrought iron and a face that is steel Mm -hmm. so i I, I think that's the reason why nails can can shear because the factory ones were probably cutting against the grain versus you're cutting from sheets mm-hmm. and it's not always guaranteed which way the grain's going when you're just throwing sheets into a, mm-hmm. a system to cut them. How much of, I, you use the term docent for those of us that are a little bit fuzzy on what that actually means. Um, what does that mean? And then what percentage would you say of your, of your job at Sturbridge is, you know, is education versus demonstration? Like, what is your what is your day to day like? Well, first to answer your question as to what a docent is, is 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 a docent is a volunteer in a museum or or other 
institution, whether it be, you know, like a, like a, a zoo or a gallery. Um, and, and I act as sort of like a, a guide or an interpreter. And at, at Old Sturbridge Village, uh, we're doing it in costume, in period appropriate dress. And uh, we are not talking like if you went to uh, Plymouth Plantation, we, we don't talk in the speak of the time. Um, you know, if you ask me, where's the nearest bathroom, I'm going to tell you where the nearest bathroom is. I'm not going to act like I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> so <laughs> they do that at Williamsburg. <laughs> yeah, anybody who's been to one of those places that does that, it can be very annoying. So, so. I just got to pee, man. Where do I pee? <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> so um, that's what, it, what, what, what a docent is. So, so oh. when I am in a, um, in, in a station, whether it be the, the blacksmith shop or the bank or the small house or what have you, um, I'm going to be talking about what my job is, what, my, what I would be doing. I'm going to be demonstrating. So I'll be explaining why I'm doing a particular action, whether it's why I'm striking a piece of metal in the manner that I'm striking or explaining, you know, as I do a forge weld, what's happening. Um, oftentimes, you know, people will ask, you know, how hot is that? And, and it will explain that, you know, while today we have measuring devices that can determine the temperature of the iron as it's being worked in the time period, you know, we went by the color of the metal, mm-hmm. and which, which is why it's somewhat important to work under the shade or inside of a building, because as I learned um, in my own trying to make right. this into a hobby out in the sunlight, you can't see those colors as well. Mm-hmm. And we know that the metal goes from, from black to red, from red to orange, orange to yellow, and yellow to white, and then beyond white, the human eye really can't see the, the color differences. But um, it starts to turn red at right around 1,000 degrees. And if you're out in the sunlight, you're going to miss that completely. You're going to just be looking at a black piece of metal. And it's not until that temperature gets up substantially higher that you can really start to see that, that color out in sunlight. But if you're inside of a building, you can certainly see the progression of the colors and you can show that to people as it's happening by pulling it out of the fire and showing them. And then you, know, you can also demonstrate people don't realize that blacksmiths, we, we don't, we don't cast anything. We don't make metal. Um, our fire pots are one too small and two, there's so much oxygen being pumped through there that you're unable to liquefy the metal. You can certainly burn the metal, but once I burn a piece of metal, that's a bad day for me. I just, <laughs> wa- I just wasted money on material. I just wasted time. And now I have to take that material and, and, and trash it. You know, granted, it would probably go to a, a, a recycler at the time, somebody who did have a foundry that could remelt it and, and do something. But that's far beyond the scope of what a blacksmith in the countryside is doing. It's 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 funny you mention all this stuff because I took I've I've told this story a few times on the show, but a couple couple of years ago with my brother in law, I took a blacksmithing course um, at a farm in you know upstate New York. And they, you basically, you just, they, they bring you into a, you know, a shop. There's like room for six people. There's six anvils, six coal forges. And you just basically, you work with a guy who tells you briefly, you tell him briefly what you want to try to accomplish. And he helps you get there. And all the stuff you're saying, like, you know, I walked in the first thing I was like, geez, it's dark in here. And the, and the teacher heard me goes, you're going to appreciate that later. And I'm like, okay. And sure enough, 
I did because yeah, you could see the color and he goes, when it's this color, that's when you start hitting it. Okay. Okay. And you really do start to understand. And then you were talking about burning metal and you know, the first thing he told us was don't leave it in, you know, don't leave it in there too long. And if you see sparks start jumping out of it, you left it in too long. And I was talking to him and he goes, you're not watching your metal. I went, what? He goes, you're not watching your metal. And I turned back and I see sparks jumping off it. Uh-huh. And I, I took it out and he's like, see, you wrecked it. And we got to start over. And he took the angle grinder and he cut the end off. He goes, start over. <laughs> you get an F. Yeah, basically. How- I'm not a, I'm, I've done a little bit of blacksmithing before, nothing super intensive. How different would you say it is it nowadays versus hundreds of years ago? Well, certainly we've seen some, some increases in technology, whether it be um, different ways to heat the metal up to, to forge. We have different types of metals, different concerns health-wise because of those additives in the metals. But basics are basics you you need to learn how to uh, you know how to point the metal how to draw it out you need to know how to upset it you need to know um you know how to cut it uh, you need to learn how to how to strike it precisely and a simple thing like making a nail teaches you all those basics and oftentimes when you're demonstrating in front of a group of, of people that are coming through um, if, unless you have a specific job that you're trying to make um, a very quick and easy thing to show people is to make a nail mm-hmm. you, you know even if you take your time and, and do it in you know, you know two or three minutes versus just pumping out nails every, every minute um, you can go through all the steps and you can explain this is why I'm hitting it here this is why I'm doing this and you've basically shown a lot of the steps involved in your future blacksmithing endeavors mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 funny because I was thinking that was a really that was an interesting question, Brooke. And the reason I thought the reason I thought it was interesting was as a, as a woodworker, you know, woodworking is, I mean, yeah, you can do it old school. You could be like the dude from the woodwright shop, and you know, only use hand tools and you know, sit there with foot pedal material, foot pedal tools and stuff like that. But really, woodworking is very technologically driven now. Yeah. You know, even the tools are, you know, everybody's trying to get the highest performance tool and people we're, you know, people like you and I love lasers and CNCs. I mean, it's kind of our thing. And, you know, all this stuff that we, you know, we have for woodworking, it really just isn't for blacksmithing. Blacksmithing is still just heating and whacking metal. And I'm not trying to take the art away from it. I'm just saying that, you know, the, like, like Alan said, the basics are the basics, you know, you, there's only so many ways you can do it. Now, can you you can whack with a hammer, you can whack it with a hydraulic press, you can whack it with a power hammer, but in you're still doing the same thing. You don't have a machine, you know, where you digitally design what you're going to whack and then give it to a machine and say, "Okay, you do the work now," you know? It's Well, that is happening in blacksmithing and it doesn't take away from it being blacksmithing whether it's somebody is ordering a, a pair of 4-foot-long hinges and they're cut out on a water jet Mm-hmm. And then they're given some texturing by hand. Um, you know, there are people that, that are purists that'll say, no, that's not blacksmithing. But you have to kind of go with what the market will 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 do. Certainly a, a pair of hand-forged hinges in that size and length and what have you are going to be substantially more money than if you went to a smith who said, look, I can do it by hand or I can do it this way. And then you look at the cost because a lot of people don't, they, they don't um, see value sometimes in, 
in that traditional method. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that Smiths who were traditional took advantage of any improvement that made their job easier. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, myself as somebody who, who you know, does work in a museum environment and mm-hmm. I do work in my own shop and my own shop is not, you know, completely mechanized. I, I, although I do have a power hammer, most of my work is done by hand at the anvil, but I don't have a problem with people using the technology that's available mm-hmm. to them mm-hmm. and, and yeah. then aiding it with, with some hands work. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting when you walk around Old Sturbridge Village, it's a place that I've, I've gone to so many times in my life and, I, and I've always loved it. And I think it gets to the heart of, of like being a maker in a way because um, we think of things like pottery and blacksmithing and like barrel making and there's like a sawmill and stuff. Um, in a lot of ways, like pottery in particular is one that's easy to pull out. People think of it as an art form now where it's like an arts and crafts project. But when you really when you see it in that setting, in a living history museum setting, it sinks in that it's utilitarian. Like we're not they're not trying to be doing crazy. I mean, sometimes it's decorative, but it was needed. It's a needed item that someone's creating from nothing. Well, Brooke, that, that's that's kind of a, a neat point, because the redware pottery that you're talking about at the museum that was like the Tupperware of the day. Yeah. Um, it was the, the item that you would prepare your food in, that um, you may um, have your own little mug or what have you, but it's not something that you're going to be utilizing during times of company or serving meals or what have you. No. You're going to utilize your your imported china from Britain, and it doesn't matter if it's chipped or has cracks. It's a status that you've got this... Right. This, you know, fine um, China, but that redware, like I said, it's it's the Tupperware. <laughs> yeah, today, utilitarian. Yep. T- today, though, in in this community of of people that um, do mud larking or or privy digging or bottle digging or what have you, if they found a piece of redware from the early eighteen hundreds, late seventeen hundreds, that piece would be worth hundreds of dollars potentially. Mm-hmm. So. If you have your Tupperware from today and we were to bury it, what are they going to say about it 100, 200 years down the road? It's an artifact. So, so Beautiful. Take, take all your plasticware and hand it down to your kids. They'll appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. It, it's, just, it's just interesting, too, because to look and say, well, this is blacksmithing. This isn't blacksmithing because it's, it's gotten more high tech and things like that. It, 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 it's, it's almost like comparing apples to oranges because it's like, well, what are you trying to do here? If you're trying to make some dramatic, elaborate thing and you're going for shock value and woo, that's really beautiful. Wow. Versus like, I need I need a hook. You know, <laughs> it's two different things. Mm-hmm. There were people, there were people in the time period of of that, of the museum that were producing items that were more than strictly utilitarian. There was beauty and design, Mm -hmm. form and function. And it it wasn't just a a basic stamped out thing. It was something that was personalized by the maker, by a manner in which he, he probably makes his work and it makes it identifiable to him, mm-hmm. whether it's the type of finial on the top of the handle, uh, you know, whether it's a, a, um, a welded on circle or whether, whether it's a multifaceted top yeah. or, um, you, you know, a heart shape or what have you, yeah. they all leave their little signature marks in, in, in their work. They yeah. may not always sign it, 
but there usually are things that you can put to a a particular region Mm -hmm. or a particular smith and i kind of like that i think that you know when you see that little extra touch that one particular person does you know they, they 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 pinch the bottom of the mug handle or they put a flare to it um it shows some pride in their their work even though their product may be utilitarian they are trying to it's their their trade yeah yeah there's um my my husband michael was dealing with a antique piece of furniture and was had pulled off all the hinges and all the hardware to polish them up and it was pretty neat because things like little details that you don't see on the finished piece of furniture on a hinge nonetheless that wasn't even decorative when we buffed them off there was a little like logo or a little stamp on on each and every one of them and it was pretty neat because you it really does put into perspective someone made this like someone took pride in their work. Someone makes hinges, right? And they're going to make mm. the best hinge they can. And there's their little mark on there. There was no name and we, we couldn't figure out where it was from, but it was still pretty neat to see. And, and that goes right back to um, my, my work in the village. People come through and they see these various crafts. And sometimes you can get a, a you know, what I would call a teachable moment with a, a person on, let's say they never thought that they, they, they could, do this. They, they didn't think that they could blacksmith. They had no particular fondness for it. They just coming in to see what was happening and then they planned on leaving. Well, pre-pandemic, you know, I could take people beyond the chain or the rope and, and come mm. back to the forge yeah. and they could, they could make their own item and something as, as simple as a, as a S hook or a, a um, hanger of some sort. Um, they could do that in five minutes time and realize that this is not above or beyond them. This is something that they can do. Uh, There are always stories of people that have been coming to the village for years and got them interested in something. And then they go off and they become a potter themselves or Mm -hmm. they, they get into blacksmithing Uh, myself. My story as, as a, as a maker comes from my volunteering there. Um, once I got into the blacksmith shop, there was an item that the store had wanted to sell, but none of the smiths there wanted to make. And they asked me, you know, do I want to make these and sell them to the store? And it was what I would say is, you know, sometimes the silliest little item, but it's been my number one seller since I formed a business. Um, yeah. In order to sell to the store at the museum, I had to basically make a business, get an EIN number, get my tax ID and what have you. And I made horseshoe nail rings. I'm taking a real nail, a real horseshoe nail and bending it into a ring. And that led to me um, not only selling to the, to the old Sturbridge village gift shop, all the rings that were being produced and sold there. Uh, I was selling to the Henry Ford museum it's incredible. The, I've been there their, too. I love that yep, museum. <laughs> the Greenfield Village. Yeah. Um, Henry Ford is said to have gone to Old Sturbridge Village when he was looking at starting his museum yeah. to get an idea. Now, now, Old Sturbridge Village has been around since the, the, the 1940s. Um, their opening was delayed because of World War II, but um, they were actually in, in the process of prior to that making their, their, their museum. So a lot of places kind of look to Sturbridge as as a um, leader in that whole outdoor living history. Yeah. And, you know, they've been doing it for so long now, I think that they've gotten it right in, in times where, you know, certainly they've been impacted by, by recent events. But 
um, they're still here today because they've mm-hmm. adapted and they've they've taken their program and tailored it more to what people want today. Yeah. But yeah. still maintaining that that level of historical interpretation that I think that they're known for a very good, good educational experience. Yeah, I think so, too. I think would you say, Alan, that there is an increasing disconnect with how digital everything is um, between people and where things come from, like how you make something? I, I believe there is a disconnect. However, I think that there are things happening today because of that disconnect that are pushing a a change in um, some people's behaviors. I mean, we have people that we now call homesteaders that mm-hmm. are growing yeah. their own food. They're raising their own animals. That's they're doing true. their own butchering. And I think that's all because of um, that disconnect and wanting to reconnect to yeah. – you know, something that is more wholesome, more um, rewarding and beneficial to them. Yeah. It's also, I think a lot of it is also what we were, what we always talk about here, where there are people who are just tired of having a life of non-tangible things. You know, the, the idea that, you know, you sit in front of a computer screen and you may be able to make, you know, do, do something or whatever, but you know, it's in the end, it's digital, right? But mm-hmm. making stuff is tactile. It's very, it's very almost intimate. You know, you're, you're, you're working with materials, you're working with tools, you're building something, you're producing something. And, you know, at least for me, one of the reasons it's very funny because the first makery thing I really did was 3d printing, which really for all intents and purposes is makering is making only in the sense of the broader maker thing. Right. But the next thing I started really doing was woodwork. And I love woodwork. I love doing woodwork. And I love it because my job, you know, granted, I have a creative job and do I do graphic design. But in the end, I love, love, love the physical thing. Yeah. You know, I even got excited a couple of days ago. Um, the sign guys were in front of the main office of the company I work for. And the logos that I designed are now giant on the sign and there's a physical thing now right it's not just a logo i designed it's a logo i designed for the company i work for and it's up there gigantic as a physical object yeah and i think that that's kind of that's another reason that people are kind of going back to you know you said homesteading homesteading is a good example but even like learning some kind of skill that produces a thing i mean i've seen people who never did any kind of skilled anything I see a lot of people knitting now. And it's like, mm-hmm. of all the things to take on knitting, it's like, yeah, but knitting, I get a thing out of it. I can make a hat. I can make a scarf. I can make a, you know, it's you're optional. really talented. Yeah. You know, that, and- that, that's interesting that you say that there's that, you know, while I agree that there's a swing, I think it's the digital that enables a lot of that. You know, even I watch the YouTube videos. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. there are many backyard mechanics that, you know, when they have to change something on their car, it's to YouTube and see how it's done. And then they'll oh, sure. do it. Yeah. You know, so. Um, but the desire to actually do it, right? That's that's people- the thing. Because, I mean, I could, if I wanted to do, if I wanted to, for example, when I, when, when I was, when we were getting the house ready to sell, Right. The weekend before we had them in to take pictures of the house, there was a massive leak under my sink. I could very easily have called a plumber, paid a thousand bucks, and they would have been done and out the door, right? But I, I was like, no, I, I can probably do this. 
I never would have thought that way 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, it would have been like, I got to find someone to call. But now it's like, no, I can, I can handle this. And I did. And I did a good job of it because it stayed dry up until the house sold. I don't know where it's going to be now, but it's dry. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I, you're, the, digital, the digital you know, may educate people on how to do things, but I still think it's at the core, it's mm. the desire to make a physical thing and do a physical thing. And there's, there's no shame anymore in you know getting your hands dirty it's not work for the other guy it's not work for the people you pay i think part of that by the way he he deserves a lot of credit for it but mike rowe and what he did with dirty jobs you know showing the people that were doing all these jobs that people thought were beneath them i think i honestly think that that kind of started a shift with in most people's mindset yeah, no, I actually never thought about this concept because I always thought about digital kind of killing making. But I think you're very right, Alan, because if I think about it, like I knew how to sew growing up. The only reason that I knew how to use a sewing machine was because my mom sat down with me and put my hands on the sewing machine and we just did it. If mm-hmm. I didn't have that, how would I have ever thought to or even thought it was an option right or ever thought it was even approachable because it's a skill that I've learned as an adult a lot of people don't know how to do and I think back and it was so normal in my childhood (laughs) but it's because someone needed to to physically teach a kid right so if you're if you're a kid that's growing up if you don't have someone around you that's going to physically show you how to blacksmith or pottery or any of these things right like the digital does give that window in that that otherwise isn't there so I think I think you're right. I like that perspective. I've just never thought about it that way. And, and there are there are services that you can subscribe to that you know it's it's like when you go to YouTube. There's mm-hmm. new you know there's that section new to you where mm-hmm. you can explore things that ordinarily don't come across your feed, and you might find something that interests you. I, I know that um, I, I've seen some. I, I don't remember the name of the site or whatever, but. Um, they they basically had experts in different areas, and you could watch and see what they do. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are some people that are interns who probably never had an interest are inspired by that. And yeah. well, if, if they can do that, then I I can do that. Yeah, and you're you're naturally going to grab onto things that are that are you're surrounded with, and I think it's great in that it makes things approachable that you didn't even know existed. There's so many weird niche things. Well, there, there, there is which <laughs> which something which, will spark creativity. Which, which is why I want to ask you, Brooke. Mm-hmm. What do you call a person who hammers on iron? person i don't know a person a who hammers who a hammers blacksmith, a, a blacksmith. Right? yeah what do you call somebody who hammers on gold a metal a goldsmith a goldsmith what do you call somebody who hammers on tin a tin smith and somebody that does silver a silver smith and somebody that hammers on glass a glass worker a vandal a vandal true touche touche you got me <laughs> Yeah, I, I am. I'm a. Uh, big... It's a dad joke. It took a long time. Yeah, yeah. It was no, a very, I got, very I got low, it. It's funny. It's, do you know what? Do you know what? It's funny to me, Alan, because actually, my background when I I, I used to teach kids uh, like hands-on making with this whole kind of mission in mind. And I actually started with glass working. So like, it's funny. The joke was funny. I got it. Uh, I, I, actually, <laughs> I always wanted to, to do glass work and, and yeah. I wanted to incorporate it with my metal work. Yeah. And I went to my regional craft center and took a class on doing a, a blown glass mug. And while it's a lower temperature that you're operating at, you know, you, I think you're around 2000 degrees or what have you. Um, 
and you have some time to to play with that material similar mm-hmm. to, to metal as it you know starts to dissipate um, I have the most silly wonky looking mug but I am so proud of that oh it's hard <laughs> you it, see, it is. you see the videos of people making it look so graceful which it I, I is think... if you practice it absolutely is but like yes, saying yes. it takes practice it really does I <laughs> I am so addicted to the show blown away on Netflix I've never heard of that show oh my god Wait, this is a show it's we'll a sh- yeah there's a sh- there's a show it's actually hosted by nick Uhas, the youtuber okay. and oh man it is awesome and you watch people do stuff with glass that you're just like how do they even like it doesn't make any sense that you can physically do the things they do with glass and <laughs> well, it's it. It, yeah if, if i can interrupt because this when, when when the village had me form a business mm-hmm. to start doing this you know blacksmithing, metalwork, doing cold forged rings. Um, one of the things I did, because I didn't want my retirement to fund you know, what could potentially be a hobby that's going to cost me money, <laughs> is I, I tried to research ways to, to you know, start my business. And I found that assets for artists out of the um, Mass Mocha, um, they were funding various art proposals. And I'm like, well, metalwork you know, to me, it's art, you know, yeah. it has lines and flow. And I, I said, you know, I see the beauty in it. And, and I think it's art. So I submitted, you know, a proposal to them with some images of what I, I had done and what have you. And I received a, a cash award from them to help with my business startup. Hmm. And one of the things that they required was that as a recipient, you had to attend these business classes, how to okay. market your item, how to, you know, do um, advertising and your finances, uh, developing a business plan, what have you. And um, in the group that I was at, some wonderful makers, all different mediums, but there was one person that was doing glass. Now, mind you, this is 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, when they were going around the room and they're asking everybody what they do. And there's a lot of painters, there's some uh, musical people, there's uh, some, some writers and, you know, I'm there with my metal work. And when it gets to him, um, you know, he said that he does glass work and everybody's, Oh, you know, what kind of, what, you know, what do you do? And he kind of mumbles under his breath. Um, and, and we're like, what, what was that? And I, it was at the start of the whole States legalizing marijuana. Yeah, I, thought, and, I was like, I think I know where this is heading. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> He was making these pipes yeah. and I mean, they were beautiful. They were, they, they were art in themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and then I found out what he was selling them for. And I was like, wow, yeah. did I pick the wrong hobby? <laughs> uh, yeah. It takes a lot of, it's, it takes a lot of skill though. For oh, sure. It it's a lot is. of practice. And I will say we're doing glass. It's expensive. Um, it's just, it, oh. it, it's very expensive because you have the kilns. To I'm, run. Always, I'm always amazed that, you know, it, whatever area, you, whatever area you find your your making in, mm-hmm. the, the the knowledge of the material always amazes me. Yeah. Like it becomes a part of you. Like, you know, I bet if we asked Alan, you know, what temperature does this work out? What alloy works mm-hmm. best for this? I I'm sure those answers come very easily, right? It's the same with woodworkers. Woodworkers know that you know this kind of wood is good situationally for this and it's going to tolerate this much it's going to move this much and it's, it's it always amazes me glass guys you know metal guys you know i was work you know i i talked 
was it last week or the week before about hanging out with Emily Joyce for the weekend and watching her work and the way she knows how the metal is going to behave when she makes jewelry. And it's just, it, it always amazes me how everyone, even if you're not a like, you know, scholarly expert, you mm-hmm. kind of become this almost like a mini expert in yeah. the thing that you're doing. And the, the amount of knowledge that people pick up, even in a short amount of time, just through repetition and, you know, maybe they watch some YouTube videos or they take a class on Skillshare or they take a class at some local organization. It's just amazing to me how much you can absorb. And if you try to explain what you know to somebody and you watch their eyes start to glaze over and you realize just how much you've learned and how mm-hmm. much how much knowledge you've absorbed over the years. It's, it's fascinating to me. It's just fascinating how much you can learn in a short amount of time. Yeah. Well, and a lot of it is a lot of time too, when you see people's work or like, you know, like someone's beautiful glass working or whatever, whatever the case is, it's easy to look and be like, Oh, that's a cool thing. But if you're not familiar with the medium too, it's, it's sometimes easy to not realize like that's five years of work that went Mm -hmm. into that particular thing or whatever yeah i I would i would have to interject also that it's the people that that look at it in that manner that well you know he has a machine that makes that or you know it's the it's the camera that takes the picture or what have Uh you they don't appreciate the amount of time that went into all the work that you had to learn how something moves or how the grain's going to react yeah they don't Mm -hmm. they don't understand they overlook that part so you do need some teachable moments and then they have to make up their, their mind whether or not they think that there's value in that. Yeah. Because nobody really knows, like they see, you know, they see your beautiful picture that you took with your camera and, you know, <laughs> Dave Swiduck always talks about this cause it's the truth. He always talks about, you know, how, people always ask what an about what what kind of camera they have because it must be a really nice camera to take that picture and what they don't understand is that camera. that yeah that camera took dozens of garbage photos too you know it's yeah. like it ain't the camera doing the work and it's the same with any craftsman you know you look at the work someone put in they go wow what kind of tools do you use to do that <laughs> ryobi yeah, <same laughs> you. you know yeah well, I have, a, I have a question, Alan, actually, because you interact in the shop with people who are not necessarily coming with a background in making or an understanding for making at all, necessarily, like not even, you know, who knows why they're at Old Sturbridge Village that day. What is well, the well, most common I'm, questions I'm gonna, you get? Oh, go, go you go. I'm, I'm going to cut you off because I could take that question two ways up until you said the, the, you know, oh. the museum, because well, I often interact in my shop. Okay. In my, my personal blacksmith shop, I built a post and beam barn um, building to house my blacksmithing, but it also houses two little miniature donkeys. Yes, and we love the they, donkeys. I do interact with them. I, I they're my my, um, my my sort of like my proofreaders or, or my quality inspectors, and they approve my hearts after I make them or any items that I make. And you know, I'll feed them cookies and have conversations with them. Um, that's really a lot more since the pandemic. And uh, one of them even tells jokes, and he's on YouTube. <laughs> no way! I have to check him out. <laughs> yeah, no. But, but as far as as far as the museum goes, mm-hmm. um, you have a, a variety, and I think that I would I would look at it on the the um, season. In the spring, we, the the museum gets a lot of school groups, yeah. and the school groups generally come into 
Um, there, there are some where teachers give them an assignment to ask questions and they'll have the same paper and they'll ask, you know, you know, specified questions that the teachers want to hear the response. Or you'll get the kids that'll come in and say, do you make knives? Do you make swords? Do you make, make weapons? And, you know, you have to, again, take these moments and make them somewhat teachable by, you know, who am I servicing in 1838? Who are my neighbors? Who lives in the house up the way? You know, they're farmers. You know, mm-hmm. And farmers, they, they, they don't need a sword to cut their corn down. <laughs> you know, I don't and, know. They might. <laughs> you know, up, up to a certain age, uh, uh, people are required to be in the militia, so they've got muskets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, you don't need that sword. Maybe if you're in the militia and you're an officer, you have a sword, but that's part of your unit and, and your, your equipment. But routinely, you don't find people going around with, with, with swords. And I don't know if that's more the um, sensationalization of edged weapons and forged in fire yes. or if it's some sort of um, online gaming thing. I think it's totally forged in fire. I think it's forged in, addition, in fire. <laughs> in addition to teaching glass, I used to teach metalworking a bit to kids, like with copper, like copper working. Mm-hmm. And there was this there was this solid break that happened where I was never once asked, are we making swords in class ever? And then, you know, I, I teach like hundreds of students sometimes certain years. And there is one year where suddenly it was every class. There was like, are we going to make swords next week? Like, what's the week that we're making swords? And I was like, where did you get this idea? Because I wasn't aware of the show. But anyway, absolutely, well, it's Fortune and Fire, which is I think is great because yeah. it, it brings interest. But I have two things about Forge and Fire. And as far yeah. as the questions that you go in the in the, in the blacksmith shop, um, the kids will mainly ask about weapons because of their interest in, in, in weapons, the adults come in and they say, they watched Forged and Fire. Do I do this? Do I do that? <laughs> and uh, again, um, you know, it's, it's the Industrial Revolution. Knives, weapons, they're all being made in factories. They're not being mm. made by a country blacksmith. So you have to take a step back and explain you know just what the job of a of a blacksmith is now that's not to say that a blacksmith may not do repairs to somebody's um um i'm having a senior moment here like a pickaxe or something no 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 no. at the end of your your musket you may have a A uh, bayonet a bayonet yes so you know your bayonet may have gotten damaged and you, you may need a repair um Certainly, that's something that a country blacksmith could probably finagle and, and get going. And um, I say that because, in part, um, I actually have a real-life experience of going to a blacksmith shop in Connecticut. Um, it was owned by a gentleman's grandfather who died around 1910, 1920. And the blacksmith shop was then you know, turned over to the son. And he just closed it up didn't want to deal with it and locked it up and used it as storage with everything still in there. Wow. And then the son grows up and he has his son and that son, now the grandson inherits the property and it's so debilitated and falling apart. He decides he wants to sell the contents and then try to bring the building back up with the proceeds from that. And I went in and we're looking around in the shop. And in addition to, you know, typical repairs that were happening in the shop, you might find a, an axe where the, uh, the, the steel bit was chiseled out of it and he was getting ready to forge weld a new bit in it. Um, on the back table, there were two bayonets. 
that were damaged that, you know, I don't know if they were from the Civil War period or, or, or what, but, you know, that was a repair that you may go to somebody like him to do. So, you know, there is there is some small like, you know, likelihood that, that something like that would happen. More than likely, you know, it's a specialized job being done in a factory and, and not coming to a smith. And now, and it's funny too, because now everything is made in factories and yet people still want, like, for example, you know, now that I'm settled in, I moved in according to Hollywood. Um, <laughs> I actually have a friend of mine who I promised her that when I got settled into my new place, the first thing I was going to do was commission her to make me a really nice chef's knife because I've always wanted a really nice chef's knife. Mm-hmm. And I am very, very excited about the prospect of having a hand-forged, handmade chef's knife. Yeah. And, and I think that what, what may have happened is that people are, like, for the same reason that somebody will buy, you know, a $200 cutting board from me when they can go to, you know, they could go to Walmart and get a bamboo cutting board for 40 bucks. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not doing that. They know. Pe- the people that know, know. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I have no problem telling my friend, yes, I will spend a thousand dollars on a knife if you're going to make it for me, because yeah. I feel like that's worth it to me to have that knife because I'll never need another knife again. I do think something nice to see happening is I think that the value of brand names just in general across the board mm-hmm. is slowly but surely going down and people are starting to reappreciate the handmade and i think it's that like revitalization that we were talking about earlier yeah. work a bit where people appreciate it more and i think well, it's awesome i i do think there's a little bit more than that revitalization because if you look at at that early time when the industrial revolution is starting in order for a factory to take the job away from a person making something by hand they had to do a couple of different things they had to produce a product that they could make for a reasonable price that people mm-hmm. would be willing to pay. And it had to be durable. It had to be something that was going to last. Um, because in that time period, people were, were, you know, money was 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 not something that was always readily available because you're primarily farmers. And uh, what cash you had, you needed to pay your taxes. So, you know, there was a lot of you know purchases that were being made on credit and what have you. Whether it's barter or credit, um, so when you bought that item at the store, you wanted it to be able to last. You wanted to not be having a disposable item like we have today. Mm-hmm. And it's over time that the factories have been able to, because that handmade has gone less and less, you know, farther and fewer between, they were able to take their quality and save money. And, and now today you buy a shovel or a, a garden implement, you may be buying it. It's mass produced. It's not meant to last. It, it's, you know, you pay $10 for it. And when it breaks, you throw it away and you go buy another one for $10. Because yeah. if you had to even just replace a handle on a shovel, you're probably going to pay more than the shovel for the handle. It's true. It's true. And I'll, I'll, something else to take into account, something else to change, and particularly in the last decade or so, the average person now has access to the suppliers yes, that supply the average that supply companies. Mm-hmm. So you can go theoretically, I mean, within a certain amount, right? A, ma- a certain amount of wiggle room. You can go on AliExpress and you can get 
the stuff that gets put in a different package and mm -hmm. sold at a store. It's yeah. the same stuff. The same I thing. have three suppliers from China that email me regularly asking when I'm going to start buying my band. Cause I make these little bamboo cutting boards in the laser and they have funny, a funny saying on them. This is where I murder vegetables. It's something I sell a lot of. It's not something that's a lot of effort for me. It's just something that just kind of flies out, right? It's mm -hmm. an easy to produce thing that I can sell cheaply that people seem to like, right? Yep. The Chinese manufacturers are the same ones that are selling the boards to the places I'm buying them from. And they're wanting to sell them to me too in bulk. I have access to suppliers. The average person didn't have access to suppliers. Yeah. You had to have connections. You had to have an in, you had to have a recommendation. You had to have somebody that could take you there. And now, even if you don't have those connections, you can go on something like AliExpress and go, Oh, I need 5,000, you know, crock charms. And you can buy them yourself. Like you don't have to. Exactly. Because e even in my own business with, with the blacksmithing, if I am making a necklace or, or you know, some sort of um, hanger for a necklace, I don't do any work with, with leather work or, or chains or jewelry. I buy my leather necklaces from a site in China and buy them by a hundred or 200 and, they get shipped over here, and, and it's much cheaper than going to mm -hmm. Michael's or some other craft store trying to buy them. You Who know, are the getting price, them from those same people? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, the problem now is supply chain. Yeah. So unless you yeah. overordered or you 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 um, have another source, it could be three four months. I mean. I talked about the horseshoe nail rings and mm -hmm. I, I buy a variety of different size nails to make those rings mm -hmm. and probably around November of last year, I went to reorder and they were, they were on back order. So I didn't think much of it cause I had several boxes and then I went to reorder again, maybe a month or two ago and they were still back ordered. Mm. And today I'm now I'm starting to get desperate and I went through a bunch of different companies and they're all on back order um, for this particular size nail that I use. Yeah. And you know, it does present some, some issues. I started seeing it. It's very funny because I started seeing it. Uh, when was it like right around, right around 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic. And what I started to see happening was I was having trouble getting um, drilled eight millimeter stones. And those were e those were so abundant that I could go on Amazon and pick from 30 different sellers. If I wanted, like if I wanted pink rhodonite, I had no problem getting rhodonite. Rhodonite, I had so much rhodonite that I was like, I was grading my rhodonite as I got it in bags. Like I would go through and go, man, that's not good enough to make it, make anything with like, it got to a point where I was like, whoa, this is getting really hard to get. Why is this, why is everything tightening? Why, why is my one company in China who always has these on Amazon ready to ship? And, you know, I live near an Amazon distributor, so I get it the next day. Now it's like possible delivery in 14 to 19 days. And it's like, oh boy, what's going on? And as things have gone on, remember, this is before the pandemic. As the pandemic started to heat up, it got even worse. And now it's just like, you know, if you find someone that has it, order two. Order two. No matter what you're ordering, 
if you're going to use it, order two of it because you may not be able to get it again for a long time. And that's just become my motto. If I'm getting supplies of any kind, I overorder everything because those that slack when I'm done making the thing I'm ordering for is the only thing that's going to keep me going when everything constrains to the point where I can't get anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I always wanted to be, a business owner. Who knew? You know, here in the States, mm-hmm. um, there, there is no, no certification that has any real weight to being a master blacksmith. I, I know that the, the knife people may disagree, but um, <laughs> yep. the, the, the difference between America and um, England and, and the European uh, um, countries is that they had a guild system where, you know, you created a, a, a masterpiece of work, you apprenticed for a period of time. And, and that's how you, you know, you were judged on that work by the guild and they awarded you that title here in the States. There was no system to become a master blacksmith. Mm-hmm. Um, the only requirement that you needed to be a master blacksmith was to own the smithy. Mm. that made you the master. Wow. What would happen is if you couldn't Smith very well, you were not going to be in business. Were you right? People were, you know, cause you're only serving neighbors and the occasional traveler. Your neighbors are not going to return to you if you can't produce an item that works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that weeded out those people that, that didn't know what they were doing. And those that, that did survived and thrived. Yeah. And, um, unfortunately, a, a lot of smiths, as things were, were, were starting, um, they didn't share their secrets like we find makers today. We have makers that will produce videos of everything that they're doing and how to do it. Yep. And um, I, I think a couple hundred years ago, that really wasn't the case. You know, no. you had distinction on on your quick way of getting this done. Yeah. And, and I think you kind of kept that to yourself. You, you know, nobody was writing books until the craft started to die out. Yeah. Then you start to see people trying to preserve the craft and documenting things. Right. But, but even today, um, we'll have items at the museum that you can't buy today. And they were probably made in factories at the time. But you're getting an original piece and you're trying to recreate how it was made and get to that process. And, and whether that's um, having to make specific forms to hammer the metal into, some swages or particular ways to do the weld and have the grain, um, those are all things that you kind of have to go through and figure out. And it can be trial and error. It may involve, you know, etching the metal to see how it was constructed. Um, or, you know, in the case where you can disassemble something, do it that way. You know, something you something you said there just blew my mind. And now, I, you know, sometimes a guest will say something and my head will just sit there and chew on it for a while going, damn, that's good. <laughs> and the, the 
I really love this idea that, you know, the dying of the trade may have been what saved the trade. Yeah. Because once the trade starts to die, you have preservationists who want to teach it so that it doesn't die. And they become almost advocates and, you know, evangelists for certain trades, trying to get people involved. And they get, in, you know, the enthusiasm is ramped up and, you know, come in. I want to teach you this. I want to teach you all these things. I never thought of it that way. You know, you look at something that's dying and you go, that's going to go away and no one's going to know it. But then you see, you know, a whole culture of preservation start to form where they're like, we can't let this skill die. There's a woman and I can never remember her name. I, I really feel bad because I love her videos and I'm not, I'm just one of those people I don't subscribe to, but I just like her videos and I keep watching them. She makes old shoes in oh, like, no yeah. And like, fascinating. An it's, it's unbelievable. It's the most interesting thing you've ever seen. And she does them in like um, a preservation village, like an 1850s preservation village. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating watching the way she does these shoes and everything is done by hand. And it's like, wow, you know, people would never do this. Like modern, you go to the store and you, but the fact that she's so enthusiastic about what she does and it's like, oh, okay, I, I, I kind of want to do this. Like, I love, I, it, I love watching people be passionate about something right? so niche. I don't, I don't even care what the topic Isn't is. Isn't it great? It's I swear. Best. It's the best thing ever. And thinking I, about things that I've never thought about before. And that's what I love about Alan. That's what I love about what you said, because now I'm just going to be thinking about that forever because this idea of this was dying. So people got enth more enthusiastic and more focused on getting it to not die and it's like, oh, wow, that is that is deep, man. That is, wow. <laughs> you hit well, me in a it, certain it's, way, it's, and I'm, I'm just picking at that in my brain now. It, it's sad that it takes that to happen in order for things to happen. You know, if you look at with the, um, the American chestnut, you know, when the American chestnut mm -hmm. was, yes. was killed off due to a blight, um, from a, a society in New York that had brought in some Chinese chestnut trees, not realizing that they carried this blight with them that they were, they themselves were resistant to. Um, so when it landed in New York over a period of five years, it spread out further and further and they realized the American chestnuts were dying in response to, to the, the fear of the chestnut trees dying off because chestnut trees um, six billion trees died over the next 40 years. And in trying to preserve them in their rush to save them, they clear cut thousands and thousands of acres of trees trying oh. to stop it from progressing, not realizing it's traveling by air, it's in the soil, the animals are carrying it. And um, they'll never know if any of those trees that they cut down were blight resistant and could have survived, you know? So I think that sometimes we're in a rush to preserve something, but we don't always do it right. And so that's why I say today, we're still trying to figure out how they did things 200 years ago mm -hmm. because it was commonplace at the time for a particular trade, but it isn't anymore today. And you go, how did they do that? How did they do that? Mm -hmm. And it's lost to time and you have to figure it out. Well, it, yeah, you, go, you can go, Vincent. The, the American chestnut story. I had no idea this was a thing. 
and they talked about it on working on the Working Hands podcast. Oh, I think oh. it was two weeks ago. No way. I learned about it at Old Sturbridge Village. Well, you know, most people <laughs> would never know. Most people would never know about American chestnuts no. if it wasn't for Mel Torme and his chestnuts roasting over an open fire song. Yeah. And unfortunately, he wrote that song reflecting upon his childhood. By the time he wrote it, the chestnut trees were, were practically non-existent. Mm. And um, he also wrote it on one of the hottest days yeah. in the middle of summer out on the West Coast. Clearly, you, you know, not wintertime or what have you, but just that that reminiscing for an older time, mm. a simpler mm-hmm. pleasure. Yeah. And it sort of touches upon something that keeps coming to mind in this conversation where it's so easy to feel like this quote unquote simpler world was so distant it's not that long ago. Like if you really think through the number of generations back, like 200 years ago or whatever things are, you know, to have lost parts of trades, it's a blip. It's like this, it's a teeny little bit in time. And yeah, it's just, it's an interesting perspective to gain where if you don't consciously keep things alive or consciously practice things or whatever, it doesn't take that long and they're gone. Yeah. They just vanish. They go. Yep. Just like that, and 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 what's funny is once they're gone, gone, they're gone. Yeah, like I mean, everything's they're... digital now, though. So I wonder how that'll be in like two hundred years. Well, I mean, <laughs> we probably have the opposite problem. Nothing goes away. Maybe, or everything <laughs> goes away with one good EMP. Yeah, it's so, true. <laughs> we we're at like an hour fifteen already. I can't believe how fast this conversation went. I'm just, I love I love talking to people that are like experts in their area. Oh, I'm by far an expert. <laughs> oh, but, but see, to us, this is the thing. Expert is relative. And to us, you're an expert. <laughs> well, the, o- the only reason why I would be a master blacksmith is because I own my own shop. I would consider myself in the, in, the, in the journeyman area. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. You know what? You I, get the title the way you get the title, right? But, <laughs> I, but think, I, I, I do make. I do mm-hmm. make. Yeah, I love your story of how you came about getting to making and that it looks different than I think what people think of as like a blacksmith and like how that happens in someone's life and whatever. Mm-hmm. So thanks for sharing that unique perspective. Well, you, you know, I, I think when your life changes so rapidly yeah. and then all of a sudden you're, you know, for 26 years, I, I did the same job, mm-hmm. 23 of them in the same place. And, and then to have a medical event with my heart that prevented me from being able to do it. Um, what do you do? Yeah. What right. do you do? Yeah. And I, I began, I began volunteering. I volunteered for a woman's flat track roller derby as a non-skating official. No way. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> wait, wait wow. how did we not talk about this? this Alan, is- Alan, Alan, let's circle back to this. <laughs> Well, what, what I found was that probably about 80% of them could, could, could have kicked my butt. I'm going to mm-hmm. use the word butt, not the other one. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But well, it, it, was, it was a fun two and a half years doing it. I learned a lot from, from these people. And um, unfortunately, their, their team sort of moved further to Western Mass, and it was mm-hmm. too much of a commute for me to, to keep volunteering and go out there. But I did a, a, a antique car show that I volunteer at, and then I volunteered at Old Sturbridge Village. And of all those things that I thought would change my life, I never thought it was going to be the museum. Yeah. Uh, the museum gave me a, a, a purpose and drive. Um, I would never work there as a paid employee. I mean, they're a very nice employer. I give them a lot of credit. You know, when, when, when uh, I went to work during the, the um, holiday period on their Christmas by candlelight program, they yeah. gave staff, um, 
test kits, home home COVID test kits, mm-hmm. you know, and, and nobody could find those in the stores. Yeah. yeah. But um, they, they felt that, you know, if you felt, you know, something wrong, they, they've taken tons of measures to mm-hmm. protect their staff yeah. and, and their visitors. And, and they've only just recently uh, um, stopped doing the uh, the mask by visitors. And I know that they're going to be revisiting it on the, on the staff and the volunteers. Um, but they looked at, at building, you know, capacity and quantity of, you know, quality of air and what have you, and shut out certain areas and put people into different areas. They, they really did a, a good job uh, on ensuring everybody's safety during a really hard time where it, nobody knew what was going to happen. It's kind of a cool place to visit because you can feel the strong sense of community, or at least I always can when I come as a visitor, where it feels like this little self-contained unit. It's super cool. It's a super neat place to walk around. There's I, an, I, I agree. And step agree. back in time. It really does feel that way. And, and as a visitor, you can be as interactive as you want to or you don't want or to. Or not at all. Yeah. Yep. You can just walk around without going into any buildings, without talking to anybody, and you're mm-hmm. still going to get something out of it. Yeah. I think the imagery of, of the, the setting is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever done the Christmas program there. Oh, but we I do it every highly, year. <laughs> highly recommend it. Yeah. Usually I, am, I, I don't know if I've said this. Like, I actually studied colonial archaeology for like a hot minute. So I love history stuff. So yes, Old Sturbridge Village, we go every single year for Christmas at Candlelight. When when our daughter was younger, we used to go all the time on the weekends. So anyway, yes. Yep. I'm a nerd, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I've never been I've never been to Sturbridge Village, but in New York there's a place on Beth Page, Long Island called Beth Page Village. Yeah. And it's a restoration village and it is an absolute trip. Like it is so Super, much fun. It's so fun. Yeah. It's I, I think <laughs> these kinds of places, you know, I, I it's funny you said you're you're a bit of a nerd, and it's like, yeah, and it's okay because this is a cool thing to nerd out about so a little cool. bit. It's like it's so wholesome. I love that word yes, for it. You use that that's word, to, the word. You use that word to describe it, Alan. And I was like, that's the word. It's the most wholesome thing yeah. ever to just do all day. So much you know fun. what? You know what else is wholesome? What? Things of the week. I think you're right. I think I'm pretty <laughs> sure our things of the week this week are pretty wholesome. So, yeah. a- Alan, what is your wholesome thing of the week? <laughs> Ford Maverick. The Ford Maverick. Everyone Ford loves Maverick the Ford is, Maverick. Is, is my thing of the week. Now, I had put in an order for one of those back in July of 2021, and I received my Ford Maverick, the hybrid model, at the end of. January. Okay. And the thing that really surprised me, because when I ordered it, I really didn't know much about it. I, I knew it was going to be a small pickup truck. It was going to be a hybrid, but for the price of it, it, it didn't really matter what it was. It was a great price for a small little pickup. So when I get it, I start watching videos and, and you know going out and looking at a demo and seeing what the vehicle actually consisted of. And and what I found was that Ford took a really unique and different approach. They built a vehicle and instead of trying to sell you all these options to go with it, they came out with how to make videos, um, a a maker's space for innovation on something that they were selling. They, They put adapters in the cab area. They made containers or, or, or slots that you could make containers to put into. Um, they did a, a bed system that you could create your own storage, your own bike racks, your own um, uh, mounting points, what have you. And they're really pushing the idea that you can personalize this without 
buying options, you can create your own, whether it's a 3D printer or doing some work with various hardware or lumber. And for a, a multi-billion dollar company to say, we want to encourage you to do better than what we can do or do it cheaper than what we'll sell it to you. Mm-hmm. I find that amazing that a company is going to put their profit behind a group of people innovating. I've seen people selling on Etsy these inserts for a particular storage area to put your cell phone in. And without the insert, you really can't do it. But Mm -hmm. they're selling these inserts. They're selling bed rack systems that they're making. I really want to see what some of these 3D printers do with the various mounting things. Um, One of the things that Ford did, because my vehicle took so long, is they they sent me a a package of um, basically 3D printed materials for those slots. And everything from trash cans to cup holders to... um, cord hooks or, or what have you, there's, there's a whole realm of possibility. And I think by making the vehicle um, with the ability to, as a, as a maker or as a person that wants to personalize some big expense for themselves to be their own, to make it mm-hmm. their own, um, I, I think that's really great that you know this mega company yeah. decided to do that. It's a big deal to have it recognized like that. Yeah, I mean, because it's recognizing this like movement. a cultural shift on, almost. Yeah, you're 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 getting behind this whole maker movement, and mm-hmm. and you know, I think a lot of people were not necessarily pushed, but a lot of people went towards the maker movement during the pandemic. Uh-huh. You, you know, the 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 uh, thirst for um, whether it's information or or entertainment, um, all those YouTube developers and all those Instagram influencers. All these different ideas were thrown out there, and I think you saw people supplementing their income by by making. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I just want to point out, by the way, I don't know what it's called, but the color you got yours in is the color to get that truck in. Oh, I love awesome. that color. Where can area, I see a picture area 51. of it? Is it's, it it's on, on your Instagram? Instagram? Oh, well, let uh, me you must not be liking my post, Shoot. young lady. Actually, hey, she I'm honest, on it. I'm honest. She commented Dude, on wait, it. She said, did I not- really? You said not historically accurate, sir. Yeah. This, this is true. Yes, she did. <laughs> yes, I remember that comment. Okay, I was like, wait. If I, I, at least I wasn't commenting on the color of the car. And then forgetting about it after. Shoot, dang it. I just exposed myself. Well, at least I'm honest. It's a, it's, it's beautiful. It I'm, is, I'm, yeah, it's a, it's a really neat car. It, it really is. And, and the fact that you got 47 miles to the gallon on a trip with is like, that's that. Yeah, I had a GMC Canyon, which is also a beautiful pickup, mm-hmm. but 21 is like the top end of the mileage on that. I hit 25 once, but 21 was more likely where I was getting mileage out of that. And I, I would have killed for 47. For 47, I would have kept it. <laughs> the, the, the funny thing is, is when I bought it, I, I actually thought the mileage was reversed. I thought it was 48 highway and 32 around town. And what I found out is, no, it's 48 around town and 32 highway for a combined of 38. Mm. And um, what I found is pretty much, you know, I can do better than that around town. They have this this little teaching mode uh, that helps teach you how to keep it in electric as you're going around town. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's where your savings is going to be. It's not like some 
some EVs there where you have a switch that you can, you know, hybrids that you have a switch to make it all electric. Um, you have to kind of retrain your driving to make it more compliant with the with the hybrid end of it. It's 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 interesting because I had a Honda Civic, right? I had a Honda Civic. I had a 2013 Civic, and it was the first year that they had the indicator for when you were quote driving green. Hmm. And it's it's really funny because your mindset changes and you really want to keep that leaf lit. And it's like you you try you, instead of hitting the gas when you don't need to, you kind of let it coast and you ease onto the gas a little bit. And it's your driving my driving habits changed so much having that car. Because, you know, I had cars with just regular traditional engines and no indication of how well I was doing on gas mileage. I used to just, you know, lead foot, foot to the pedal, pedal to the ground all the time. And I changed all my habits. So I can only imagine, like, what your driving habits must be, you know, moving toward with something indicating that there's almost like a reward for driving a little bit better. That's kind of cool, actually. Well, there, there certainly is at the gas pump. There's a huge yeah. reward. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Jeez um so just just for the record i just want to point out this is brooke brooke this is our third show together it's our third show yes it's our third show together and we are already picking the same thing of the week because we share a brain i guess so um, do you brooke want to wanna... of it brooke gets more of it than i do of course but <laughs> <laughs> why thank you um do you want me to say it or do you want to say it vincent oh oh, oh i insist on you saying it ladies well, first my thing of the week this week is the new netflix series making fun yes which has um with jimmy Duresta and jackman and gros makes and oh gosh i'm gonna miss someone pat justine Lap. silva justine and, silva, and who pat am i missing shoot are pat, we missing anyone pat lap yeah and then yeah, I think we get everybody. And and Derek from Alden. Yes. And Derek. Okay. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, you're, but basically, you're... you know, my neighbor. Your neighbor. <laughs> I love Derek. <laughs> um, yeah, but we watched the show for the first time a couple days ago. And I'm not saying I wasn't expecting to like it, but like, I don't even know how to. It, it's so good. Like, you have to watch it's really this show. Good. It's made for kids, I think. And I, and, and I don't know if I was expecting to watch it because I knew people that were involved with this show and I was excited to support my friends, but a hundred and thousand twenty seven percent I would watch this show if I had no clue about any of it. If absolutely nothing else, it's really funny. It's kids, it's 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 wholesome word of the day. But the filming and the like the people that filmed and edited this, it's out of this world. Like it's the best editing and filming I've seen. And it's on a Netflix show. And I'm like, whoa, where did they get these people? They're incredible. It's so good. Yeah, I think I, w- I, I wasn't expecting it to be as funny as it was. I actually messaged Jimmy. It's actually funny. Like, I, w- I was expecting yes. it to be like, oh, haha. I'm like, there was a joke. It, like, actually makes me belly it's laugh. It's actually too. funny. Like, Friday yeah. night, I was watching. I, was, I plowed through a bunch of episodes Friday night. Um, and I think I watched the last one Saturday morning. Like I got through almost the whole season yeah. on Friday night. That's how excited three, I was. Like I was sitting there. So far. Oh my God. It's, I, I messaged Jimmy and I'm like, this, this is, is one of the most unexpectedly funny things right? I have ever and watched. It's not and, to say that I didn't expect to like it. Like I thought I was yeah. going to like, I feel like such a jerk saying that, but it, it's like, it blew away my expectations and I was expecting to watch it because I was like, oh yeah, cool. Of the whole cast, the only person on the cast who was new to me 
was Pat. Yeah. I know all the other people super cool. or have talked to all the other people yeah, and have on you, the cast. Have you been there too? I been where to Jimmy's? Yeah. Oh, I've been to, so I've been to his go-kart track. Okay. I went the 4th of July last like, year. We've been there too, which is pretty neat. It's, it's, it's I'm telling cool you, I'm, I'm just cool. Yeah. it's just cool. It's cool. It's, it's great. It, it was, it was so fun just watching people who, you know, and you've interacted with and it, I, I, but it's I don't even wanna... more fun because even if I didn't know them, the show is phenomenal. I feel it doesn't like it even could... matter like that. I know them or not. It's, just it's a great one of show. those shows. Yeah. I, it's one of those shows. I feel like you could, you could watch with your kids and you'll get different things out of it and mm -hmm. you'll all enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. It's great. And, Cause there's a lot of, <laughs> well, there's a couple of moments where like, I know there's this, this, this kind of dynamic between Jimmy and the kids that I've been seeing a lot of people are like, that's not a cool thing. Like he, at one point he called one of the ideas dumb and <laughs> it's like, you shouldn't call kids ideas dumb. We know, but this is TV. I mean, yeah. but it was the kids were, the kids were cute. Great. Um, the, it's just a well done show. It's, it's so a really well good show. done. And that's the perfect word for it. It's just so well done. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. Anyone check it out. It's on Netflix. It's making fun. I think the icon is, is like a T-Rex head. Yep, Again, it's, it's, a, just, it's just a show I would have never clicked into and been like, I'm going to love this. Uh, I'm one so, of those. So yeah, I, I actually haven't seen the show. No are way. they all, are they all woodworkers? No. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah. But no. Yeah. But no. <laughs> <laughs> like Jimmy's not really a woodworker. He's kind of like, um, like an everything guy. Like metal and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Graz is kind of a little bit of everything. Jack um, woodworking and. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a wide it's, it's range kind of skills. Just, it's kind of just a cast of characters. Yeah, you know, it's a, and it's it's way, it's also. By the way, did you feel like it was more personality driven than you were expecting it? Um, I don't know. I I I think I knew it was going to be good, and I knew that it was going to be fairly personality driven because I heard lots of murmurings as they were filming it. So I knew mm. a little bit about what it was about, and I knew that they were having a phenomenal time. Um, they definitely were having so a good I time. So I kind of expected that part because I had heard little bits and pieces. So I, <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I see where this is heading. And yep. I was just so excited to see that it came out so well. But yeah, it's, anyway, it's I feel interesting. Like I keep saying the same thing over and over again. They do a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that goes on on this show. It's not just like it's, there's woodworking, there's metalworking, there's some custom fabrication. There's a little bit of everything going on. It's, I think that's another thing that makes it interesting. It wasn't just, okay, here's a thing. Okay. How do we build that yeah, thing out of it was wood? Really, it was really well conceived. The whole, the format of the show works really nicely. The editing and like the film, I'm like, yep, you win. Whoever's, <laughs> whoever's handling that, you win. Yep. It's, yes, yes, it's, yes. It's easy to get caught up in who's on the show and forget how good the show actually is. It's insane, it's, yeah. But it's a really good show. Like, I would highly recommend. If you have Netflix, it's on there. It's been on there since Friday. And if you, you haven't already have Netflix, watched Netflix, get Netflix and watch it. Yeah, get it for one month. I mean, everybody else does that. <laughs> yeah. Bor borrow a friend's password. Yeah. Do what you got to do. Just go watch the damn <laughs> go show. Watch the show. It's great. You'll smile, I promise. Yes. You know what? You know what else makes me smile? what the people that support this show financially yes they do make us smile and those people include leanne and nick from hemlock and hyde dave from atomic airship works emily joyce ed from ed's clocks and more rory from rll woodworks and diy chris from full steam designs jeff stein aka a weird guy debbie haddock jerry hyduke joey from jh custom woodcraft 
Dean DePlantis, Jacob Anguiano from Maker Cuisine, Robert J. Keller, Scott from Dad It Yourself DIY, the one and only Grant Alexander, Tony Langer from Langerworks, Jacob from Other Dog Designs, Jake from Make with Jake, Al Schultz from New York Woodworks, Justin Ofler, Bear Maked, Greg from Platte Valley Woodworks, Adam Mackey, Maker Mackey and the Clamp Podcast, who had Bob Claggett on this week. Holy crap. Great job, guys. Um, Kim and Garrett, Andrew Richard from Andrew Richard Makes, Kellen Hazlip of Kellen Makes, David from Southern Style DIY, Jeff the Weekend DIYer, Sean Walworth of the Proper Tools Podcast, who, in case you haven't already heard, had the one and only Ethan Carter on last week. So Go, Ethan. Again, I like to tell people, if you miss Ethan, there's plenty of ways to get more Ethan. So that's a way to get more Ethan. Go listen to him, talk to them. Uh, Chris Raley from Route 9 Signs, Henry Davis from HT1 Metalworks, and of course... Austin Saunders, the high caliber crafts, and we appreciate everyone that donates to the show financially. You guys help keep the show going. If you can't afford to yeah. donate to the show, by all means, share the show, send a review. Um, in fact, Brooke and I are going to have a little parlay after because we just got a really cool pitch for another really cool pitch for a guest. So um, she doesn't know about this one yet because oh, she don't? doesn't check her she doesn't check her email yet. So um, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm gonna... <laughs> throw me under the bus. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Well, one, when I want everyone, everyone, I want you to start peppering the Maker's Workshop LLC Instagram with Brooks. Set up your email. Just keep always, doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> but if you haven't, if you can't support the show financially, anything you do do to get the show out there, we really appreciate because, hey, we can't do the show if we have no one to listen to it. And you guys make that possible. And we thank you for that. Alan. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you, my friend, and I am really glad to have gotten to meet you. I feel like I feel like I went to school today, and in a good in the good way, not in the <laughs> I hate school, so I hate going to school. But it's been really fascinating talking to you, and I love your perspective on stuff. You're a really interesting guy who's making some really cool stuff, and it's been awesome getting to know you. Thank you. Thank you I so much for coming on. Myself. Brooke, I will have to. Um... Make sure that you get some redware. I was going to say, I didn't get a chance to say it, but I've been drinking water out of my old Sturbridge Village redware mug this whole podcast. <laughs> I'm drinking Snapple out of a plastic bottle, so I'm not anywhere near as cool as you, Brooke. <laughs> but everybody knows that already. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on. Anyway, thank you so much, Alan, for coming. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, Alan. That's going to do it for this week. We will be back again next week, and uh, we will see you then. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.